Dear Heavenly Father, what a, what a wonderful opportunity it is any time we can come before you with your word in our laps and uh, our minds open to study. Father, there are many blessings you've poured out on this group. I'm mindful, Father, every day as I consider the, the, the rich blessings I have in my life, the, the opportunity, Father, to live in a culture where there is such an abundance and an opportunity, Father, to be loved by family and friends and to have uh, a good-paying occupation, Father. It's a blessing to have health and a church, Father, that uh, values your word and teaches it and, and so many other blessings, Father. But perhaps it is the, the first and, and foremost blessing of an access to your word that makes all those other things possible in so many ways. And Father, that it is also the thing we so often forget to give you thanks for. Uh, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, that you work so hard to bring it to us through men who sacrifice so much to make it available. And thank you, Father, that there is uh, such an abundance of teaching material, such an easy access to your word now in so many ways, and uh, yet so few people avail themselves of that opportunity, Father. We're thankful that you've caused us to have a heart to hunger your word in, in this way. But now, Father, we know that for those who are given much, there is much expected. So what is expected of us, Father? I pray that as we've studied today, as we have in the weeks before, that you would begin to build in us an understanding of what is expected of us, having come to a knowledge of your word in the way we have. What do we do with it, Father? Guide us in that decision so we may glorify you. And uh, guide us in our teaching tonight, Father, so that we may reflect you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 17. Well, we covered chapter 16 in about two weeks. We're going to take maybe a little longer on 17, maybe three weeks if, if you're counting. But 17 follows in some ways very much like 16 did. So if you have your Bibles, open them up there. We're going to begin in the first four verses of that chapter. Let me set the stage for you one more time to give you a perspective of where this chapter goes, how it fits with what we've studied so far. Uh, last week we watched at the end of chapter 16 Jesus basically putting the Pharisees in their place. Now that's nothing new. He's done that several times. He's not, he's not done doing that for obvious reasons. Uh, last week's focus was on the purpose God gave His Word. Why did He give men the Word? Ultimately, it was so that they would know Christ. Every page testifies to Christ. You remember we studied that. But yet, what the Pharisees had done with the Word was misuse it. And what do I mean by misuse it? Well, last week we studied how rather than use it as a means of, it, of illuminating God's purpose in His creation, specifically His purpose to bring a Redeemer, His purpose to redeem men through Christ, His purpose in setting up a kingdom through that Christ, Rather than use the word to reflect and illuminate on that point, they turned it into a yoke. That's the phrase out of uh, chapter 11 of, of Luke, where Jesus says they turn the word into burdens, that they, heavy burdens that they lay on men's shoulders, burdens that they themselves weren't even willing to carry. So they had turned it into something it wasn't meant to be. By burdens, we mean, of course, strict rules and regulations for living that only made their lives miserable, while giving them the impression of working their way to God's pleasure, to working their way to heaven by virtue of carrying these burdens. Complete misuse of Scripture, no, re no relationship to its true purpose, and absolutely no way of, of bringing men righteousness, much less peace. And so they misled a generation. That's the end effect of their error and of their evil ways. They didn't just lose the opportunity to know the Messiah for themselves. They were the teachers, remember? They were the leaders. 
what they taught stood for the sake of many people in their day in the, in the land of Israel. So when Jesus came, he rebuked them not only for their own ways, but for the fact that they were culpable in the fall of their own people. They were culpable for, for the very fact that they were teaching falsely about Jesus and about the, uh, about the Scripture. That's what he meant when he says, now the kingdom of God has been preached and yet men are forcing their way into it, trying to make it something it's not. So that's what Jesus taught last week. This leads directly into the next sequence. In chapter 17 today, even though it's a chapter division, it gives the impression of a new start, of a fresh direction. That's what the chapters tend to communicate to us now. That's not so much the case here. If you look with me at the text now, you'll see it's a natural follow-on to what he's just taught at the end of chapter 16 with that story about Lazarus and the rich man. Look what he says now, verse 1 out of chapter 17. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. We'll pause there because I want you to understand what he's talking about here in relationship to chapter 16. And then we'll move on after that. He's moved out of that story about essentially the misuse of the word and its impact, its effect on people when it's misused. He moves from that now into this discussion to the disciples concerning sin within the body of Christ. And he begins with this intriguing comment. And this is a comment that We've probably heard before, you know, we, there will be stumbling blocks, but woe to him through whom it come. You may have heard that before, but I don't know if you fully understood its meaning, because if you take it out of its context, you miss the point, I think, or you're likely to miss the point. In light of what he'd just been saying in chapter 16, I think it's relatively easy to see that what he's referring to here is to Pharisees and their false teaching when he says stumbling blocks. So we need to define the terms. The term stumbling block here by virtue of the context in which we find it, must mean the Pharisees. A stumbling block, in this case, must mean the Pharisees and more specifically, their false teaching. And I'll say it this way. It's inevitable that men like the Pharisees will come, claiming to be men of God, claiming to be the ones who know God and can teach His ways, yet actually teaching heresy instead. And that heresy is a stumbling block before God's children. That bad teaching, that misuse of the word, is a stumbling block, potentially, for God's children. Which immediately tells us two important things about the nature of these men, or the nature of these circumstances that Jesus is is talking about here. First, he's speaking about men who present themselves as ministers of God. Men who are, just like the Pharisees, false teachers as the New Testament describes them, false witnesses of Christ. Think about it. Who could cause a person who is truly seeking after God to stumble so as to never really find God? What kind of person has the power to cause someone who wants to find God to not actually find God in terms of the truth, the true God? What kind of person has the power to do that, has the ability or the opportunity to do that? Uh, Clearly, it's got to be somebody who has credibility in the eyes of that seeker. It has to be somebody that the seeker believes has something to say on the topic, is a credible person in 
in this conversation about what is God and who is God and what does he want. If it's somebody with no credibility, why would they be a stumbling block? There's a lot of crazy people with ideas about God, but if you don't think they have something sensible to say on the topic, you don't give them your, your attention. So in order to be a stumbling block, they have to have the appearance of credibility. The Bible, as I said, calls them false teachers. And that's why Jesus is talking to the disciples here when he gives them this instruction. As he's finished with the Pharisees in chapter 16 and criticizing them for their false use of the word, that gives him an opportunity to turn in the moment to the disciples and give them some instruction on what to do in the future when they face this same kind of problem. His concern here is that someone within the church might repeat the error that these Pharisees now have been uh, doing in their day within the nation of Israel, presenting themselves as a true authority, but yet not having a genuine faith of their own, and therefore, they don't know the truth. You know, if you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand the things of God. The, the Word of God, we're told, is foolishness to those who are perishing. So for someone to begin to represent it to another person, and yet they themselves don't understand it because they are a false teacher, means that whatever they say is going to be wrong. Whatever they think is going to be wrong. Even if they get it right by chance, that chance will be few and far between, and in between will be a lot of error. Look at, the, look at the Pharisees, men who we know Christ says, you are of your father the devil. You cannot understand my words because you are not of God and only those who are of God can understand what I'm saying. That was what, that's how he refers to them when he talks to them in John. These men, not being of God, not understanding the word, were the men turning to the nation of Israel in the, in the day that Jesus walked and telling them what to do with God's word. Clearly they couldn't understand it well enough to, to teach it properly. Jesus says, it's inevitable that those kind of men will come. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So if you know that, if Jesus knows that it's a matter of when, not if, then it only makes sense that he wants to teach these men how to deal with that problem, to prepare them for the wolves that will come in amid the sheep and try to undermine their teaching. Paul warns the church at Corinth about this same very concern. The Apostle Paul repeats this concern in his own teaching in chapter, two, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, when he says in 11.13, speaking about men who, who are not true disciples, but are rather false teachers, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul warning the church there in Corinth that when you see these guys, they've got to have the appearance of credibility. They've got to look like you. They've got to appear to be true brothers in Christ. Otherwise, you wouldn't care what they said. It's the fact that they look like you that makes them dangerous. That's why they even have the audience they have in the first place. They will follow the pattern, Christ, uh, Paul says in, in his letter, they will follow the pattern set by their master, Satan. They will follow in his footsteps, which is to say they will uh, parade themselves as someone who knows the truth and yet they don't. But then he says they'll receive their just punishment. Now the second thing, I said there's two things we learn here about what Jesus is trying to teach by his comments to the disciples. First thing was that these men have to appear to be true righteous teachers of the word, though they're not. The second thing we have to learn about these men is that they cause people to stumble through their misuse of the word of God through their misuse of the Word of God. Remember, it was the Pharisees themselves who misused the Scripture 
as Jesus taught in chapter 16, and as a result led the nation of Israel astray. How did they do that? Well, specifically, we said last week that if the word of God was given to men so as to reveal who Christ would be for the purpose of making clear who to look for, what signs to look for, so that when he finally shows up, everyone would know who he is, so that he would be properly received by those he was sent to, if that's the purpose in the word, what did the Pharisees do with it? They misused it so much, they mistaught it so much, that when Jesus actually did show up, the people couldn't recognize him. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't play a part in their own decision making. I'm not saying that they have no blame. But I'm saying that the Pharisees have culpability, additional culpability, beyond just their own lack of faith, for how they misuse the word. Remember, uh, in the word itself, James says that not many of you ought to be teachers, right? There's a concern about uh, people who take on a teaching role being held to a higher or stricter standard. I believe it's for this reason, that you have influence over others in how you use the word of God. You can fall into the trap of the Pharisees if you're not careful. Now, there's a huge distinction here between um, the Pharisees on the one hand and someone who's a believer simply getting the Scripture wrong when they teach. On the other hand, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But for now, the focus here is on unbelievers who pretend to be believers and then have a teaching role on top of that. So they have to misuse the Word of God. And this misuse will be a stumbling block. They, more specifically, they misuse it, I think, in the same way that the Pharisees misuse it. Instead of teaching it in such a way that it reveals Christ, and by revealing Christ draws men to Him, that's the purpose of the Word, today just as it was back then, we teach the Word to reveal Christ and draw men to Him. Either an unbeliever into faith, or a believer closer in conformity to Christ's nature. Right? One is justification, one is sanctification, but both purposes are met by the Word of God being taught properly. If that's its purpose in being taught, then what they do instead is they teach a word in such a way as to build themselves up in the eyes of men and to enrich themselves. What were the two things that Christ said the Pharisees were known for and therefore condemned for? The beginning of chapter 16. He says, you seek the praises of men. And earlier in chapter 15 and in 16, at the beginning of 16, he also cites their love of money. The two things the Pharisees were known for were they sought the praises of men, not the praise of God, and they sought enriching themselves with money. Those are the two principal motivations behind false teachers as they misuse the Word of God. So rather than teach in a way that reveals Christ, they teach in a way that glorifies themselves. Rather than draw men to Christ, they draw funds into their pocket. Those are the two characteristics. Further proof of that is found in Peter's letter, his second letter specifically, chapter 2, verse 1. Look at how he describes the inevitability of false teachers in the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. There's that inevitability again. And then he describes them. He says, Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You know, even Peter there reflects the fact that they're manipulating, they're exploiting for the sake of greed, for the sake of personal interests. But they will yet still see their destruction, as we said before. So, many are going to follow these false teachers, Peter says, as they malign the, the truth. Many will be exploited for greed. And... He's teaching the disciples about this principle so that they might guard against those men when they come. 
So it's a matter of informing them of the fact of this coming invasion of false teachers and then helping them be prepared to contend with it. So what is Jesus expecting the disciples to do? Having warned them, what is his expectation for them? Well, first, in the verses I've already read, he uses it to remind them of the certain judgments that await these men. As we've said out of Peter's letter, out of Paul's letter as well, Jesus says, I love the way Jesus puts it, it's a famous phrase, Matthew repeats it in a slightly different context. Matthew has Jesus seating little children on his lap when he teaches this same principle out of Matthew. But Luke doesn't give that sense to the context, Luke puts it in a, in a very different context. In Luke's situation here, Jesus says that those who would be false teachers in this way that he's described would be better to end their lives early by drowning themselves, basically, rather than go forward with a life that ultimately was to lead men astray. That they'd be better off committing suicide than letting their lives continue such that they would eventually lead men astray as a function of that life. Which seems to suggest that the punishment reserved for the wicked carries with it some varying degree of severity. Which, and this is not the only place you can go for that, by the way. There's a number of places in the New Testament that seem to echo this same sentiment. That some in eternal punishment receive a greater degree of punishment than others, though it is eternal for all. Now, we don't quite understand how to reconcile that because you think just the fact that you're there and you're there for an eternity is bad enough. What difference does it make, you know, whether it's a little hotter for some than for others? But uh, it appears as, so, as, as much as so that there is a degree of difference available. And God can, in some way, measure that out differently. Uh, you know, I don't pretend to understand it completely, and thankfully, none of us will ever fully appreciate it. But we can at least appreciate the fact that there is judgment for these men. So the first thing he wants the disciples to understand is that there is, in fact, uh, a God waiting with perfect justice for these men. But the second thing Jesus wants them to do in response uh, to these coming false teachers is in verse 3. The beginning of verse 3, he gives them the specific response he wants them to take. Be on guard. Be on guard. Which means this. As under-shepherds in the church, they've got to be on guard against false teaching so as to protect the sheep. Remember, being on guard doesn't mean anything if you don't take action, right? I can station you out front here as a guard, but if you never did anything as the guard, you might as well not be there. So by, by definition, by any reasonable uh, definition... Being on guard means being prepared to take action in defense if you need to. So that's implicit here in the instruction. It's not just be on guard, be on watch. It's be on guard and don't let them do it. Be on guard and stop them is the implicit instruction here. That's the basic, and I I go a step further here. I think that is the basic and perhaps most important duty of anyone in church leadership. And in fact, that is to guard against bad teaching, false teaching. And it's a principle repeated throughout the New Testament. You know, you hardly have to rest on this verse for that instruction. You can go all over the place in the New Testament. John 21:16. remember? Jesus is prepared to leave the earth after his, after his resurrection and ascend. And he leaves Peter with that famous command to feed his sheep if you love me. Which, in that context, feeding is a perfect picture of feeding spiritually, which we, mean, which we know means giving the word, feeding the word. Remember, the meat of the word. So, Peter's first responsibility, as Christ describes it, is to teach the Word. Kind of like the analogy of, of, the, of how you keep a teller from accepting false counterfeit money. You've heard this, I'm sure, maybe some of you anyway. You don't teach them what counterfeit looks like so that they'll know it when they see it. You teach them what the real thing looks like 
so well that when counterfeit shows up, they can immediately tell it's not real because they're so familiar with the real thing that the counterfeit just stands out. The same is true in teaching. I can't teach you all the ways somebody could teach you falsely. There's an infinite number of ways to divert from the truth. Well, if I teach you the truth, then when the false thing shows up, you'll know it instantly. That's the reason why he says, feed my sheep, prepare them in that way. Proper, consistent delivery of God's word is the essential duty of church leadership. Period. That's what Paul means when he tells Timothy in his second letter, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. He says, in season, out of season, whether you feel like it or not. Don't stop. When you look at that passage, by the way, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you find Paul giving the reason why he wants Timothy to be so consistent in his preaching of the word. It's interesting because it fits into what we're doing tonight so well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, the reason you should preach the word, Timothy... Is because there's so much false teaching going around. His reason for saying preach the word is because in the last days, false men will arise. We need the truth out there because the false guys are coming. The solution to false teachers, in other words, is to counter the false teaching with sound biblical teaching. Now, I want you to consider where he goes next in verse 3 and onward in this chapter of Luke because, again, if you're not following the thread of, of, of the discussion here, if you're not following his logic very closely, you're tempted to think he just went off on a new topic because on the one moment he's talking about false teachers, be on guard, and the very next sentence that comes out of his mouth is what? He says, if your brother sins and he repents, forgive him. Or if he sins first, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Okay, well, I'm not sure how that fits in. I mean, does it fit in? Is he just on a new topic now? Well, we know that's not Jesus' style. He's not random in his thinking. He's got a purpose. How does this fit in? Well, since the disciples are going to be on guard at all times against false teaching, it's going to be necessary for them to be ready to challenge anyone they find teaching wrongly. I mean, how else do you guard except that you get involved when you hear teaching that's wrong and you deal with it? That's one of the things I think the church has lost a little of some churches. I'm not so sure that's true here, fortunately, but in other places I've been, you can teach falsely for a long time. I'm not sure if anybody would even notice, much less do something about it. But I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> but what is, look at the compassion that Jesus is displaying in these instructions. Because on the one hand, he's just told them the danger of false teaching, the inevitability of false teaching, and the fact that they are personally responsible now as his under-shepherds to be on guard against it. That's a heavy burden. That's a serious responsibility. What are you going to do with that now? Well, if you're not careful, you're going to go out on a witch hunt. And in fact, if you're really not careful, you're going to begin to mistake false teachers for false teaching. There's a big difference between false teachers and false teaching. And what he's giving them here are some very specific steps to take to ensure that as they are on guard and protecting the flock, they don't go overboard either. They don't go to the other extreme. He says... Every teacher, is, and this is the basic principle, every teacher is fallible. I know this will come as a shock to you tonight, but there have been times, even in this study, when I have taught you wrongly. I only, I, if only I knew where they were. Right? Seriously, though, I mean, it's, jo- it's funny, but it's also serious. If I knew where they were, I would stand up here right now and tell you where I was wrong, and I would correct it. It's self-evident that I think I know what I'm talking about. It's self-evident that I think this is true. That's why I teach it. But it's also self-evident that I'm human and therefore I'm wrong at times. So we know we're going to be taught wrongly, no matter how good the person is, no matter how much they try. So there is false teaching taking place every day in every church, pretty much everywhere in the world. But that's a big difference than having false teachers. 
Because a false teacher is someone whose motives are wrong, whose heart is wrong, whose purpose in teaching is wrong, whose knowledge is wrong. They'll never be right. False teaching is simply the natural, natural consequence of God working through men. And what we do then is we simply trust in Him to get it right for us uh, when it has to be right. That when I teach wrongly, He'll find a way to correct it in your heart as He needs to, or in my heart, so that I'll correct it to you later, whatever he, His needs are. Or at the very least, the fact that I may be wrong apparently isn't such a serious concern for Him that it's uh, an impediment to Him doing good work through my efforts despite me. Right? So, if every teacher is fallible, sooner or later you're going to get false teaching. But as I said, there's a world of difference between a false teacher and false teaching. So, if the disciples are to be on guard, how do you distinguish between the two? How do you make sure you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? How do you make sure you guard the flock from false teachers, but you don't stop every human being from teaching the first time they get something wrong? Because eventually you'd have no one left to teach if that's how you approached it, right? So Jesus wants them to be careful about not jumping to the conclusion that just because someone taught something falsely on an occasion means that that person has to be disciplined in the same way that you would approach a a true false teacher. So he instructs them. He says, be ready, be on guard, and then rebuke the one you see sinning. Now, sin here does not have to be, strictly speaking, teaching. I think it includes that. I think that's principally the issue at play here. But it could include any sin. Because, to be honest, if you are a teacher of the Word, your behavior is a very important indicator of whether or not you are a true teacher. Because if you believe what you're saying, it ought to reflect in your life. If your life doesn't look like you're teaching, something's wrong. So, sin, whatever form it takes, whether it's specifically sin of poor teaching or it's sin in some other manner, is cause for rebuke if you're teaching, if you're in a leadership role, if you have that responsibility. And he says rebuke then. Now, what does rebuke mean? Well, the word epitomio, the word literally means in the Greek a stern warning or a censure. And also, it's synonymous with the word censure. And a censure means preventing someone from speaking. When you censure somebody, you're saying you're no longer permitted to speak. Or you're no longer permitted to get your, word, your, your ideas out. So in this context, you would be saying rebuke in the sense of cut them off from teaching. Cut them off from any teaching role so long as they have sin in, in a way that is material here, in a way that affects the teaching or affects their credibility as a teacher. But if they repent of that sin, if, they've, if it's been brought to their attention, they've been censured or rebuked, and they acknowledge, yes, you're right, and they repent of it, you are to forgive them. Which would include, I think in this context, restoring that person to a teaching position. What would forgive mean except that it means you restored them in some sense? So here's the pattern we're talking about. A person who is teaching clearly teaches something wrong. A classic example might be someone who would teach that you're not saved, let's say, unless you're baptized. They've read the scripture. They've taken away an idea out of the book that told them that the step of stepping down into water and getting out of the water was a necessary step. And then until you submitted to that act, whatever confession you might have made was not going to be enough. You were not going to be saved. You had to go to that next step and get in the water. Now, if that was the topic for tonight, I could show you out of scripture why that's wrong. That, in fact, that is an act that displays faith that is the natural result of faith, it does not consummate faith. Nonetheless, assuming that's an accepted view in this room for now, if you heard someone teaching that it was required for salvation, and knowing the scriptures you knew that was wrong, what should you do with that person? This is the the sense, I believe, in which Christ is saying, rebuke them. That's wrong, brother, let me show you why. If there's an immediate repentance, then perhaps that's the extent of the need to have 
a moment in, in that time. Maybe it draws a question in your mind about their, prep, their preparation for teaching. Maybe you want to you know, become more associated with them so you can understand what it is they do and don't know about Scripture. And any number of other things might come from that moment. But at the very least, they've satisfied the biblical responsibility to repent in the face of your correction. But what's implied here is that if they don't repent, if that rebuke does not result in a repentance, then the censure should stand. The rebuke effectively stands until the moment of repentance, at which point then forgiveness is available. Now, we're not talking about God's forgiveness. That's a different issue altogether. But what we're saying here is how best do you protect the flock? Because if I don't know whether you're a false teacher or merely just teaching falsely, I can't know for sure, right? Remember, false teachers look just like you and I. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the effect they have. So my first response is to say, I'm not sure what I'm looking at here. So I'm just going to rebuke them, and we'll see how they respond. And if they're a loving member of the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling them, then I trust in God to do a work of repentance, and we'll see the natural fruit of that. But if I don't, I'm either looking at a stubborn man or woman who won't submit to the Holy Spirit, or at worst, I may be looking at a false teacher. In either, way, in either case, though, I don't want them teaching until they've either dealt with that issue in their life or come to know the Lord. But in neither case should they continue teaching. So the censure would stand for somebody who is unrepentant in the face of, an, of a rebuke for their teaching or for their sin. Now, you could look at this and say, well, that could go easily overboard, couldn't it? The first time I see you do any kind of sin in your life, I now rebuke you and you can't teach until you repent. Well, it's clear enough from the context here, that's not what Jesus is advocating. Because look where he goes next in the teaching. He says, if they repent seven times a day, they, they sin seven times a day and repent seven times a day, you still forgive them. His point is, let's not get legalistic and nitpicky over the nature of someone's life because then we're right back to the sin of judging your brother before you realize you've got a log in your own eye. Right? We've missed the point of the teaching if we fall into that trap. The point of the teaching is, guard the flock against false teachers and here's a sensible way you can approach people to ensure that you get it right that you have people who should be teaching, teaching, and people who shouldn't be, not teaching. It's a simple rule, not meant to be taken to an extreme. And if it's applied the way Jesus teaches it, in love, it never will go to that degree. It will be a good way to guard the flock. He says, if they consistently fall into sinful ways, whether through wrong teaching or wrong conduct, meaning if they're consistently teaching wrongly, or they're consistently acting wrongly, sinning in their life so consistently that you have to keep rebuking them seven times a day, If those things are happening, he says, and yet they repent at each one of those moments, then you can't hold it against them. And even more dramatically, you can't hold the pattern against them. I don't know if you've given that much thought as you've read these verses, because that's a tremendous burden. That's an incredible standard. It's one thing to forgive somebody for an occasional mistake, and then you restore them as they repent. I mean, that seems natural. I don't think any of us have a a lot of problem doing that, I hope. But what if that person makes the same mistake over and over and over again and every time they make it and you point it out, they declare they are sorry and and for all intents and purposes, their repentance seems genuine. You might be willing to forgive the first one. And after two or three, your patience is waning, but you're probably still in the mode of forgiving, especially if you remember Christ's words, right? But sooner or later, doesn't your patience wear out? Sooner or later... Don't you begin to doubt the confessions? If you really repent, you wouldn't keep doing it. We say that to our kids. Right? And in fact, in the face of repeated sin, aren't we tempted to to think, 
it would be best if that person just sort of stopped doing whatever it was they were doing altogether. I mean, even if you believe they're repentant, maybe you'd say, look, buddy, this, maybe you're just not cut out for this. You know, it's self-evident. You just keep falling and stumbling and doing this over and over again. Why don't we just take you out of a teaching role? Hey, I, I know, it's, it's, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but come on, you know, this just isn't working out, is it? Isn't that the way we respond? Despite their forgiveness or their, their repentance? Jesus says we can't do that. If I'm understanding his words properly, he's saying we don't have a right to set a limit for how often someone can stumble and having been rebuked and repented, then be restored. There's no limit. There's no limit. And perhaps he means that his rule applies so long as we believe they're sincerely repentant. But you know, Scripture doesn't say it that way. Did you notice that? He never stops at any moment here to kind of define what he means by repent. So we need to be careful about coming to that conclusion even. That in fact, when, when we have someone who's fallen into a pattern of making multiple mistakes and they seek our forgiveness after each one of those mistakes, you know, we've got to be prepared to extend forgiveness even if we have doubt in our mind about the true nature of their repentance. Because here again, who are you to judge what true repentance looks like? Because see, if that's how we're going to approach it, if we're going to say to ourselves, well, I can only really do this for someone if I believe they're truly repentant, well, you know what you're going to do, right? After six or seven times, you're just going to tell yourself, I don't believe they're truly repentant anymore. It's just another way to play the same game. There's really no way for us to stand before another person and judge their heart. And though their actions reflect their heart, and that's the truth of Scripture as well, Christ says, if they repent, forgive them. He doesn't say, if they truly repent. He doesn't say, if they convince you that they're repentant. He just says, your job is to forgive. Let me deal with their heart. I think that's implied. I'll deal with what's in their heart. And there's another side to this that's particularly Jewish, and it explains why Jesus says what he says in verse 5, or in verse 6, rather, to what the disciples say in verse 5. And the Jewish side of this is, after you've forgiven someone a few times, in Jewish culture, and this is still true to some extent in the Eastern cultures today, there's a sense that one person owes the other person for having, been, for having demanded forgiveness. That if you extend forgiveness to somebody over a mistake they made against you, they now owe you. It's the, kind of like the old nature, the old notion that says, if someone saves your life, you now are indebted to them. It's on a lesser scale, it's the same idea. When they've offended you and you have to extend forgiveness to that person, the fact that they received forgiveness from you means that they now owe you something in their life. And that was a very Jewish view. And it was practiced by the Pharisees to a great degree. So that, that's why, by the way, that, and I can't remember where the verse is now off the top of my head, but there's that place where Peter says, how many times does somebody have to be forgiven? And he says, seven times, Master? And of course, what Peter's saying when he says that is, he's suggesting that it's a very magnanimous gesture on his part to forgive someone seven times. Because in that culture, that was a huge amount of forgiveness. It, it, what it basically implied was you were willing to loan somebody a lot of, of debt. You were willing to let someone be in tremendous debt to you on the basis that you would forgive them seven times. What did Jesus say in response? How about 70 times seven, Peter? You think you've been good with seven? Let me show you how far off the mark you are. The point being that you don't owe them anything. They don't owe you anything. You all owe God so much, your own accounts to one another are insignificant. Irrelevant. Unworthy of even being mentioned in comparison to what you owe God for his forgiveness. So stop counting against one another. God's not counting against you. Here, it's the same idea that disciples are thinking, if you're asking me to do a lot of forgiveness, then you're asking me to be willing to have somebody else be in a great debt to me. That's a hard thing to do. I'm not sure I have that much forgiveness available. I'm not sure I can meet that standard. Which explains the disciples' response in verse 5. 
the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This took me a little while to fully appreciate, but once God made this clear to me, it, it, it really set all the teaching around it in, in a much better way. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. The disciples are so taken aback by this requirement to show unlimited forgiveness that they exclaim to Jesus basically this, if you want us to do that, you're going to have to increase our faith. You know, it's like telling them, we don't know if we can just do what you asked us to do. You know, unless you do something supernatural to make that possible, I'm not sure I'm up to that one. That's what they're saying. Increase our faith is a, a way of saying, it's a nice way of saying, I don't have the ability to do what you just told me unless somehow you make me a better person or increase my abilities to do that. They're all but admitting defeat. And look what Jesus says in response. He'll have none of it. He won't even tolerate that thinking. He doesn't even condone it or, or, or tolerate it for a moment. He tells them that they have more opportunity to obey him than they're willing to admit or than they may perhaps realize. They have more capacity to do what he's asking them to do than they realize. And he teaches it through this very interesting comparison. He says, if they only had the smallest amount of faith, and th- th- that's what the reference to the mustard seed is simply, very, very small, something very tiny. If you only had the smallest amount of faith, you would have sufficient faith to do something unimaginable. A mulberry tree, by the way, can stand about 35 feet tall, but it's, it's notable for having an extensive root system because it grows in a dry climate. So its root system is one of the most extensive for any tree. So when you talk about uprooting it, it's, a, it's an unimaginable amount of force to pull a tree out of the ground that has this kind of a root system. And Jesus just picks a common metaphor of the day, something that was nearby, I'm sure, something that communicated his point efficiently. He says, you know, that mulberry tree, if you had enough faith, if you had even this much faith, guys, you could pull that thing out of the ground and put it in the sea, or tell it to do that, rather, and it would do it by virtue of your own word. An unimaginably difficult task. But only a very small amount of faith would be necessary to accomplish it. This is a direct rebuke, and I'm going to explain what he means here in a minute, but I need you to understand as we go into this, he's rebuking the disciples, which is ironic considering what he just taught, is it not? He just taught them how to rebuke one another, and in the next moment he has to rebuke them. How is this possible? How is it possible that something like this could be done on such a, the basis of so little faith? For example, when's the last time anyone in here commanded a tree to jump out of the ground? If you have, I have a yard full of work needing done. I could use your help on the weekend. And yet, Jesus is saying, if you only had an amount of faith equal to a mustard seed, you could be doing that. How is that possible? Don't we all like to think of ourselves as having more faith than that? At least more than whatever that amount is, that, that minimum amount he's talking about. Aren't we at least that equal to that amount of faith? And yet we aren't able to do the thing he just has to do. I'm not sure I understand how to put the two together. Well, here's what Jesus meant. The word faith, the English word faith, that word can't stand by itself. Somebody says, I have faith. That's a nonsensical statement. It doesn't mean anything. Because faith by its very definition requires an object. I have to have an object. Faith has to have an object. You have to have faith in something. It's like saying love. I love. It's a nonsensical statement. You want to know what? I love what? Chocolate, dogs, sunsets, people? What do you love? 
Without the object, the word has no value. It has no meaning. So to say I have faith and yet not specify the object of the faith is to make no statement at all. It's, a, it's an incomplete statement. Likewise, so when Jesus says to these disciples, you only need the faith of a mustard seed, we have to ask, what object did Jesus mean when he said that? What was the implied object of the faith that you need to have? The only natural, the only reasonable answer would be faith in the thing that the disciples were referring to, the the topic of the moment. In other words, faith in Jesus' words, or more generally, faith in God's will. Faith in God's word. And it was Jesus' words as he taught the Father's will that prompted the disciples to say they needed more faith. They just heard Jesus' own words spoken to them, God's direction to them. Remember, do this, don't do this, rebuke your brother, forgive him. This is God's direction, God's will, God's instructions to the disciples. And they say, increase our faith. Meaning what? Give us more ability to believe in that. To accept that. To obey that. And he says, if you only had this much faith, you could do that. Meaning... If you only had a very small amount of faith in what God's will was, in what he was prepared to do, in what he wished to see happen, then you can accomplish great things. Because I want you to consider what would it mean if the tree did leave the ground and go into the sea. If that were actually happened, what force would have been responsible for that? If the disciples had, in fact, in that moment, turned to the tree and said, okay, tree, out of the ground, into the sea, if it had actually happened, what force of nature or what supernatural force would have actually made that happen? The disciples? No. Self-evidently, no. It would have been God. The only way that could happen is through God's power. So, the power to do that actually is God's power. So, the power came from God. And His power does not vary in relationship to our degree of faith in Him. He doesn't get more powerful because I believe in him more. But he's less powerful. If my faith, it's not like if my faith starts to wane, God gets less and less powerful. Like he's some, his power never changes no matter how much faith we have in him or not. So the power to move the tree out of the ground and go into the, into the ocean has never changed. It's always been there. Still is. So no matter whether we have a little faith in him or a lot of faith in him, the power he has to do what he wills will never diminish. All that is required, therefore, is that we seek His will and that we remain in it. So if God revealed to you that His will was to pull up a mulberry tree and put it in the sea, and all He asks is that you speak those words, and He will do what He wills to do upon your words, which is what He would tell the prophets, right? Then even a little bit of faith in that word from God is sufficient to see that happen. See the connection now? Think about Jericho. How did the walls fall? Because they shouted? No, because God pushed the walls down. They only needed a little bit of faith that that was going to happen in order for them to participate in the event. See, see God's point? Did, did, did Moses, by his own power, part the Red Sea? No, all he needed was a little bit of faith that that was in fact God's intention, that he intended to do that. And then all they had to do was believe it enough to participate and watch it happen before their eyes by God's power. So in other words, we're not saying that the disciples had the power to uproot the tree. Christ is saying, you only need a little bit of faith so long as your faith is in the object of my word, then when I reveal something to you, you only have to have this much faith in it for it to be happening because you'll simply acknowledge what I'm telling you I'm willing to do. I'm waiting to see, are you faithful to my word so that I might work through you? If you have no faith, then that tree will stay in the ground. 
Not because God doesn't have the power, but because his intent in revealing himself was to his faithful. And to the degree faith arrives, he will do a work to reveal himself to that person. I mean, by the way, if he needs the tree in the sea, he'll do it with or without you. I mean, that's, that's not even an issue. The point is, he's trying to work through men to his own glory while building up the faithful. And they just got specific instructions from God himself on how to live their life and how to conduct themselves in the church. And the disciples' only response to that is, I can't do that without, without more faith. And he looks at them and says, it has nothing to do with you. The power to do anything you do comes from me. You're nothing. You, you have to abide in me, right? You, without me, you can do nothing. So it's only a matter of a little bit of faith. I don't need more or less faith. I just need you to be in faith, period. And then I'll do the work. That's the point of what he's saying here. So when Jesus says they should forgive one another many times, they only need a little faith in his desire to accomplish that work for them to actually see it through, to see it happen. Look at Ephesians 4.32 says, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So if you want your standard of forgiveness, here it is. Be imitators of God. So maybe as a rough rule of thumb, you can stop forgiving somebody else when you reach the same degree of forgiveness God has shown you. So you'll need to count up all the times he had to forgive you, add that number up in your mind, Oh, and by the way, stop adding to it. Stop sinning. And then you can wait until the person who's sinning against you reaches that number. And I guess maybe when they go one past it, you can stop forgiving. So there you go. So Jesus rebukes them to stop looking to themselves. Remember that the real power lies with God. Because they're just God's servants. Now, we're going to finish tonight with the next several verses here. But it goes quickly because the story is really just a punctuation mark to this point. These men, these disciples, they're God's servants, right? They're going to do as God directs them to do in their leadership over the church. But consider when their wrong thinking might lead one of them astray, and and if they believe in their own degree of faith, or if they believe that their own degree of faith will determine what God can do through them, they're going to be led astray by that thinking. Sooner or later, they're going to start to think what? If they believe that it's their degree of faithfulness that determines what God's going to do, then what comes from that thinking eventually? Eventually, as you accomplish things, who do you start to credit? Yourself, right? At some point, when trees do start to jump out of the ground and arrive in the sea, you start to do this. Good job. Obviously, I've reached that pinnacle of faith I've always wanted because look what I'm able to do today. It's a natural way the sin of of the heart works. You eventually start to credit yourself. God is not interested in your own glory. And so... They're going to eventually, I think, if they're not careful, get this wrong idea that based on how spiritually adept they are, how mature they are, how how much they've grown in their faith, that they're going to be better material for God. And therefore, they're going to be able to do more for God because of how they've improved themselves, how they've become more an appropriate tool for God. And what's worse, you go a little step beyond that, and now you're starting to expect God to reward you on the basis of your superior character. That now, my ability to do these great things because I've increased my faith means God ought to be doing some things for me now. Now, you think that may be a stretch, but you don't have to look very far in most churches I've been a part of to find people who have started to fall into that thinking a little bit, especially if they've been in a leadership position for a while or a volunteer position for a while or they've been serving somewhere for a while and bless their hearts, they're doing what they should be doing, but yet somewhere down inside it started to turn into a bit of a prideful thing and now, now they're kind of who they are because of how you know, spiritually mature they are. And 
you know, they should be getting more honor and they should be getting more opportunity strictly on the basis that they've, you know, accomplished so much spiritually in their life. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying all these things to remind myself because it's very easy to fall into that pattern no matter who you are. So look at what Jesus teaches next. Look how he transitions and you'll see his thinking progress here. In chapter 17, verse 7, he says, Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. And if he had said those words, those all, all those men would have laughed. Right then there would have been a, a joke in the moment. Oh yeah, right, that's what we do, sure, Jesus. Verse 8, he, he goes the other way. He says, no, but, but he will say to him, prepare something for me to eat. And properly clothe yourself, clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer would be, you don't do the first thing, you'd always do the second thing. That's how you treat a slave. That was the, the nature of a slave or a servant in their day. The person had a job. He does not thank the slave, going on in verse 9, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So, you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. So the disciples got Jesus a little riled up here. They say, increase our faith, and he gives them a little talking to. He says, number one, it's not a matter of how much faith you have. You only need a little bit of faith, and I can do a lot through you. And by the way, don't expect a lot of congratulations because you do the thing I ask you to do. I'm the master, you're the slave. You don't have any different expectation for your own slaves, so why are you surprised I'd have a different expectation for you, being a much greater master than you are? Just do what you're told to do. You know, that's a message that the church does not get much anymore, does it? Because you'd leave. Maybe not you, the good people in here, but... Isn't that the case? Isn't that the case a lot, of day, a lot of times now in churches that what matters most to us is how many people sit in the pews on Sunday? And this is a message that won't bring them back very often. By the way, quit your whining. Do what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Get up off your pew and do what you're supposed to do in your own life and then in service to others. And don't tell me why you can't. And don't tell me it's because you don't have time or you're too immature or you haven't had you know, a chance to really grow yet in your faith and blah, 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 blah. I'm putting my own spin on it, I grant you, but, you know, I think that's the sense of Jesus' commentary here. You know, in this parable, there are several things immediately apparent. Jesus is the master, the disciples are the servants. Obviously enough, right? Just as was the case in the time Jesus walked on the earth with his disciples. He was their master, and the disciples were his servants. And a servant had a, a, has a lot of tasks. That's another aspect of this parable I don't want you to miss. It's not as though they each get one little task. You can't say, and I think this is very common today, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm the usher. I don't do that. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I watch children. I, I can't do that. I have my little role. Please don't ask me to do anything more than that. The comparable illustration here is when Jesus says, Hey, you finished in the field, good. Now get dressed, feed me, and then when we're all said and done, maybe you can get some food too. Don't limit how much you can serve me. Don't tell me what your boundaries are to whether you can do what I ask you to do. You do everything I ask you to do. And then don't ask for congratulations because you managed to give me what I asked you to give me. It's the nature of what we are to Christ. And why should we feel a desire to do that? Because think for only a moment what he's done for you. And you won't take very long, I hope, before you put yourself in the right mind again and realize, well, obviously, I still owe him a lot more than he owes me, could ever owe me. And he, he illustrates this example in a sort of silly way because he wants to make the point to them how silly they're being. You know, it would have been the height of silliness for a slave to ask for a reward or to ask for recognition from his master. Really, all he wants to avoid is a beating. That's a good day. 
A good day is the day kind of goes as you expect. You get home, you're not beaten at any point during the day, and then you just go to bed. That's a good day for a slave. And I'm not saying we should, you know, the, the parable or the analogy here isn't meant to illustrate that we somehow are, you know, under Christ's thumb and that there's some, you know, negative consequence to servant, serving him. None of that is to be implied here. It's merely to, to illustrate the stupidity of an attitude, of a heart attitude that would imply we have something coming for our service other than merely the pleasure of serving the master who saved us from sure destruction. That's alone enough to warrant our obedience. So when Jesus told, told them to forgive one another, and they respond in this kind of pathetic excuse, which, which basically meant that they aren't willing to comply unless you know, he could do something for them, he says, you only need to recognize what the master's will is and then act accordingly. I'll do the rest of the work. And don't hide behind some imagined limitation of faith. We're simply an obedient slave and... What we've done is what we've ought to do. And you just have to know his will. And for many Christians, the problem starts right there. They don't know his will. How do you find his will? Well, ostensibly, through prayer and then through his word. So the more you devote yourself to this, the more you devote yourself to him in prayer, then, by extension, the more you'll know his will, and therefore, the better prepared you are to do it, and therefore, you can please him. I mean, it goes in hand in hand. To the extent we stop the process short at any point along that way, then we are like that slave that says, increase my faith. Make it possible, God. He says, I did make it possible. I gave you my word. Now go do it. That's the basic message of tonight. Father, forgive us for the excuses we bring before you when you've called us to obey. But Father, as you say, rebuke requires repentance and repentance will bring forgiveness. So we pray, Father, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as it may have been applied in our heart tonight, would prompt repentance. And then in that repentance, Father, we would chart a new course of obedience. And with that, Father, would come the opportunity to please you and, and to accomplish all the work that you have appointed to us. Give us a heart to do that, Father. It's never too late. The days that have come before make no difference for the ones that are yet to come. And, Father, in fact, it, it would seem to me self-evident that if you brought us here tonight to hear this message, it means you've got work yet to do with us. So let us turn to that work. And, uh, Father, we thank you as well that you are gracious to give us this word, that you are not content to leave us at a place where perhaps we aren't walking as we should or obeying as we should, but instead, Father, you continue to come back to us time and time again to teach us your truth and to call us out by it. And uh, we thank you for that. Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of those who have come and listened to this teaching and to the teachings before and who continue to support, Father, this class and uh, who would uh, come and support it with their time and as well their talents and their sacrifice and, and uh, bringing things for others, Father, and for their willingness to share their experiences. Father, all the ways the body of Christ would do the work you ask us to do for one another. I thank you for that here. And, uh, Father, we, we enjoy this time, so I pray we'd have more opportunity, if it be your will, to come back and study and to bring others if you would give us opportunity. Show us who may be interested and help us to reach out and bring them as well. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.